Hey, Rockheads. If you haven't already checked out Music to Code By, you really should, especially if you need to focus on anything, like programming. But it's great for kids doing homework, great for reading, great for writing, anything that you need to focus on. The results speak for themselves. I've got hundreds of satisfied customers. Go check out their comments and more at mtcb.pwop.com. .NET Rocks, episode 1111, with guest Greg Avola. Recorded Thursday, March 5th, 2015. Hey, welcome back. It's .NET Rocks. This is Carl Franklin. This is Richard Campbell. Here we are again. We've uh, got piles of snow outside still. Don't you have a booth in your house? Yes, yes. That's where I am right now, actually. Okay, because I, I don't get to engineer the show very often. It's kind of fun when I do. But you being snowed in, that's a way for me to get to engineer. That is exactly the reason why I put the booth in my house, because yeah. we tend to get a little snow here sometimes. And Just a little. Not that I couldn't go out. I mean, I have a four-wheel drive vehicle, but oftentimes the roads downtown are very unsafe. Yeah, you'll live longer, just stay home. Exactly. It's nice and sunny here on the West Coast. Well, I'm imagining it's nice and sunny, so that's good. <laughs> I got my imagination. Summertime's just a state of mind. Hey, man, I have a really great tip for uh, Better Know Framework today, so roll the music. Awesome. <laughs> All right, dude, what do you got? All right, well, I found this out the hard way, like most things that are worth knowing. Uh, that's the best way. Yeah. Some things, you know, there's just like a very obvious button. Push here to solve your problem. And then other things are a checkbox hidden deep in the bowels of an app somewhere. Right. right? All right, so here's the scenario. You've got a website on Azure. Let's say it's a storefront. Hmm. Just... <laughs> As it was, actually. Okay. Let's say it's got an SSL binding, right, that you've bought a, an SSL certificate and, and everything. And you want to completely replace that website with another website. Okay. Now, I'm not talking about slots like I did talk about before, where you have, you know, staging, dev, test, production, all of that, right? Yeah. I'm talking because you're not going to do it more than once. You just want to completely replace that website in Azure with another one. Because let's face it, the other route is changing URLs because you, and then you have to change your certificate, right? Okay. So it's kind of a pain, right? Yeah. So what I did was uh, I went looking for a way to completely replace and, and I thought, well, what if I just publish on top, you know, use a different publish profile or the same publish profile on a different app and just go ahead and publish? Well, that works fine, except for one thing. If you don't check off the setting, file publish options, remove additional files at destination, it keeps all the old ones there. Oh. And overwrites the ones that you overwrite. And that's not good, folks. <laughs> <laughs> I like the way you said that. That makes bad things happen. That, that would be bad. Yeah. So, so the tip is... If you want to completely replace one code base with another code base, just go in the publish, you know, in the publish settings in Visual Studio, where you import the publish profile and all that. Then there's a settings tab on the left, and you select file, publish options, which is a drop down. Yep. And there's four options there, and the first one is remove additional files at destination. You do that, happiness will ensue. Just a checkbox, huh? Just one little checkbox can make or break your whole day. It is not checked by default, and rightly so, because, you know, most of the time you're pushing the same code to the same site. Right. But maybe there are times when there are files there that you don't want. Yeah, yeah. You've removed some files. You want to remove them from the website. That is your saving grace. There you go. Know it, learn it, love it. Yeah, know it, learn it, love it. Who's talking to us, Richard? I grabbed a comment off of show 1102. And that's the one we did with uh, Troy Miles. We were talking about the Ionic Framework. Yeah. I got a bunch of good comments on this one. I'd not heard of the Ionic Framework until we talked to Troy. And uh, Matt Reback said, hey, guys, thanks for another great show. My commute to and from work has never been the same since discovering your show about a year ago. Awesome. 
it's great to see technologies and frameworks like Ionic gaining so much support, although I completely agree that there will never be a, quote, code once, use everywhere framework. Yep. Projects like Ionic go a long way towards lowering the barrier of entry into new technologies. Ionic and other frameworks with similar goals like Xamarin allow us to use our existing skills to quickly dive into a new technology. As primarily a JavaScript developer with some C-sharp experience, it was great that I could pick up something like Ionic or Xamarin and dive right into mobile development without having to go too deep into platform-specific languages like Objective-C, Swift, or Java. The direction I see or hope to see things continue is one where you could easily apply your existing skill set and knowledge base to new technologies and frameworks like Xamarin and Ionic go a long way towards making this true. So thanks again for a great show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Fun stuff. And it just saves the pain about getting onto multiple devices, which I'm pretty sure our guest today will be talking about. Right. Absolutely. So, Matt, thank you so much for a comment. A .NET Rocks mug is on its way to you. And if you'd like a .NET Rocks mug, write a comment on the website at .netrocks.com or on any of our mobile apps because we've got them for Android, Windows Phone 7 and 8, iOS, and Windows 8. And that brings us to our guest. Living in the craft beer haven of New York City, Greg Avola is the co-founder and CTO of Untapped. That's U-N-T-A-P-P-D. There's no E there, kids. Uh, it's a mobile beer check-in service. Some people enjoy reading books, others enjoy watching movies, but Greg's passion is to code. Being able to combine his passion for development and craft beer allowed Untapped to be born. To date, Untapped has had more than 2 million users. In New York City, Greg works full-time for ABC News on the technology team, which is responsible for ABCNews.com, both on desktop and mobile. Welcome, Greg. Thanks for having me. really appreciate it. Well, we appreciate having you on. Beer and code. They always <laughs> go together in my world. I don't know about everyone else's, but. <laughs> well, they go together in moderation, as I like to say. Uh, yeah. Too much of one thing is always a, always a bad thing. But, you know, uh, with, with Untapped, we're able to kind of combine two of my passions together, um, you know, specifically with development and also discovering new beers out there into this kind of a niche social product that's uh, really fortunate to be a part of. I'm really all about combining your passions. What uh, got you into craft beer? You know, to be to be honest, uh, you know, I've always really had a, you know, never, you know, before the untapped application, you know, I'd always dabbled in beer, but I never really found my my beer of choice. I, a lot of people say, you know, I don't like beer. And my answer to that is that they haven't found the beer. And, yeah. you know, there's a beer for everyone out there in terms of your taste profile and what you like. And I just hadn't found it yet. And uh, my co-founder and I were talking about, um, you know, uh, building an application and looking at the social scape of what's popular out there. Um, we started this back in 2010 in the summertime. And uh, we come across Foursquare, which is very popular in that area, uh, very popular in that time period. And uh, we thought about things going on the check-in. So, you know, yeah, it's really cool you go in a supermarket, but really nobody, uh, you know, cares what you're at a supermarket for. They want to know what you're doing there. We thought about it in industries that were very social, but not social on the web. And that's kind of where Untap came in and where, you know, from the application, I learned so much more about beer, what I like, what I don't like. And that kind of fueled my passion for both development and for beer um, to find the right beer for me through the application. So I said, hey, if it works for me, it can work for a bunch of other people, too. But we had no idea that, that uh, you know, we get to this point now with over two million users on the application and, you know, all across the different platforms. So what is a ch I know what a check in service is, but for beer, you basically if you're having a beer. You check in and say what you're drinking and where and how you like it, what you don't like about it, what you do like. Exactly. We want to take the aspect of rating and reviewing beers to a more mobile-centric, kind of quick Twitter-like system. There's a lot of sites out there that allow you to kind of keep track of what you're having, but there wasn't a lot of mobile opportunities in that field. Um, so we took the, the uh, concepts of a lot of different social networks that were popular. We have the Foursquare methodology where people can check in their beer and, and rate it and review it and share it with friends. We have the Twitter-like structure where all the reviews are 140 characters. Mm. So we don't want you writing a, a you know, you're a novel or something about the beer drinking. We want you to right. kind of get a couple couple comments here and there, what you think about it, and then, you know, share it with your friends. So it creates this environment where you're discovering new beers just through kind of perusing your friend's feed or maybe seeing what's around you from a local perspective to actually seeing what your friends are drinking and then seeing where that beer is being served on draft. So it kind of connects all avenues together. 
Yeah. So let me ask you a question. So I go to, I don't know, Richard and I are on a road trip somewhere. We're in, say, St. Louis and we go into yes. a bar we've never been in before. We could pull up your app and let's say I like IPAs. I could type in yep. IPA and I'd see like the highest rated IPA in that bar. Well, we, we do have some of those features in there, but the primary uh, reason for the, our discover features are more local focused. So you could walk into that bar and open up the app and look at the nearby beers and it would tell you the popular local beers that are around you. And maybe one of those beers is at the bar. We definitely want to add in more functionality to tell you kind of the tap list of what's having. But right now, all of our data is generated by users. So sometimes we see users bring bottle shares or uh, their own kind of um, homebrew stuff to, to bars. And we don't want to obviously tell people that something's there when it's really not. So we have kind Got of it. a user-generated tap list that will help people decide uh, what's at the bar that they're at. But um, more specifically, it will allow you to kind of tailor your profile. So as you use the app more often, it will learn that you like IPAs and it will recommend you similar IPAs in your local area. That's something Got that it. a lot of beer apps don't have right now. But we're able to kind of bring all the data together and kind of chunk some numbers and basically get through a recommendations that's tailored to you and your local area. So you're not pursuing finding every different kind of beer <laughs> Say just in the U.S. because there, when it comes to craft beers, it's out of control. They're it's really out of control. Yeah, yeah. To give you pers perspective, you know, we started our, our uh, beer database. It was an open source beer database back 2010. It had around 3,000 beers in there, and most of them, I would say, 90% of them were all of the big macro breweries that you see everywhere uh, in the gas station or restaurants. We allowed users to add their own beers or add beers that they find that we didn't have. Uh, and that, we've done that for the last five years. They have over almost close to a million beers in the database today. Holy uh, what? So it, it, it's really crazy uh, how that's grown over the last five years. Now, we do allow, I must caveat that, we do allow users to add their own homebrews in there. So if we take out those, it's around four hundred to 500,000 uh, beers in the database now just based on commercial products. So wow. And that's growing every single day. So it, it, it's crazy to, to see how many beers and breweries are popping up all over the U.S., and, and not just the U.S., the world, because our application is global in that aspect. Well, and it's certainly something I've noticed on Twitter is friends of mine that I'm following mm -hmm. popping untapped messages for where they yes. are and what they're drinking. I think it, it, that social element's got to be a cornerstone of what's made the product so successful. Yeah, you know, we, we always, our tagline is drink socially because honestly, the app allows you to basically do a lot of things and then share with your friends across the board. So you're always drinking with somebody else, whether it's in person or digitally. So we basically want to describe this kind of uh, environment where, you know, uh, you can be part of this global community of individuals that want to basically share and discover beer at the same time. And now you have this community to do it in real time. There have been, you know, message boards and those type of things of this type of community out there. And there are a lot of them and they're great, but we want to create this real time uh, network uh, of beer drinkers and this is kind of the platform of the social aspect that uh people seem to love wow so that really elevates the lonely drunk to a uh, sophisticated <laughs> hipster doesn't it <laughs> well you know i i think yeah you know it's always a, a time and a place for everything and i think that the yeah. individuals that use it on tap and like to use it um you know really feel like they're part of this bigger community which which is what we love i mean we had no, no believe idea. me I, that was just a total cheap shot and joke i totally get it and i think it's a great app <laughs> i love it the, the community of, of beer drinkers is something that's always surprised me is that you know not being completely into beer when we first made this application now going down the path of being so you know ingrained by a lot of the beer fans out there which we're really humbled for is that they're very passionate about things like naming systems, vintages, variants, stuff that we never really thought of when we first built the prototype. And now we're kind of have to go back in there and rethink some of the data structures for some of these things. You know, one of the things that, that comes to mind is, is collaborations. You know, when I, when I first built the database structure, it was a one to one kind of match between a brewery and a beer. I thought maybe one brewery would, would brew it and that would be the end of the story. But wow. you know, over the last couple of years, a, a lot of more collaborations have been done and we need to create this mapping system to allow other breweries to be attributed to this beer. So, you know, it, it's really cool to have, um, you know, the, the community be so supportive to us. We have a bunch of moderators that go in and clean up beers from the areas of, of their reference. So we have people in Russia, people in Italy, people in the Europe area that are helping us keep the system clean and update the right information. So it's very humbling to have them uh, help us out with that. Wow. I, I didn't realize you'd gone that far. Like you've almost got a Wikipedia-like aspect to managing right. beers. 
Yeah, well, we, we, you know, we started off with this Wikipedia style adding system. I've always been a, been a flavor of a lot of people that add beers that we don't have. You know, one of my goals is to make Untap the world's largest open source beer database. And with our API now, developers can tap into that, no pun intended there, and, uh, nice. and, uh, yeah. and go into, um, uh, use our database to search for beers and get information. So with that in mind, I want everyone to be able to add beers and, and help us grow. But with that, you have this, the side effect of duplication, uh, incorrect, uh, you know, attributes, spelling. And, you know, it, it came almost impossible for us to manage this, um, just with the, you know, myself and my co-founder. So, you know, because also we have full-time jobs, we're doing this on the side. It's a part-time gig. Um, so I think from there, we, we said, anyone want to help us? become a moderator and we got an enormous amount of people coming to us say we love it we love to use it we love to help out and that's kind of where it all started so we built a really robust editing system with a you know a management queue for merging and approvals um, then we allow breweries to, to claim their own page so they can manage their beer list and they can manage all the stuff that goes into the system so we, you know we've really spent a lot of time kind of building this uh, editing system from the ground up to make it really clean and quick and easy Craig, I got to ask you, what uh, what kind of challenges do you run into that you think might be unique to your app? I, I think, you know, one of the things that we've always struggled with, and I, I, I look at other apps like Foursquare, anything that deals with, you know, searching, is that there are multiple names for beers, while there's not multiple names for locations. So when I'm at, uh, I'm from New York City, and I'm going to search for a burger place. If I want to go down to Shake Shack, I search for Shake Shack. I get the results because it's tied to my location and the name. Beer has no geotag associated with it. Any beer <laughs> can be sold anywhere in the United States. So right. we come up with a lot of situations where people will search for a name of a beer that's also the same name of a beer from another brewery in another state. And they easily get confused with those type of data structure issues. So we've tried a lot of different ways to allow breweries to kind of uh, add uh, enhancers or aliases. But that's been a, a big challenge for us is trying to get users to check into the right beer which you think would be very simple to do, but ultimately we are dealing with an alcohol-related product here. So after a few check-ins, uh, <laughs> who knows? You know? <laughs> you know? I, I got to think it'd be useful to actually monitor the data from a given person over the course of an evening. <laughs> yeah. Big data quality high at the beginning, not so good later on in the evening. <laughs> exactly. We rolled out a autocomplete search about six months ago, which has been pretty much the, the, the best feature everyone has, you know, loves it a lot because... Like you said, after a few in the evening, typing in five letters of the first word of the beer you're having and having it show up is a lot better than trying to type the entire thing in and hoping that it comes up. So that's one of the improvements we've made over the last six to eight months to make it a little bit easier to find the beer. I got it. I know what you need to do. I got it. You basically, <laughs> after so many check-ins, you pop up a message box that asks the user, are you still qualified to supervise? <laughs> 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 you are not driving home. <laughs> and then somehow turn off their car. Oh, <laughs> we actually it. had, a, when we first launched the product back early 2011, we only allowed users to check in a certain number of beers within a certain time period. We weren't really sure, you know, if people were going to abuse it. We, we basically wanted to make sure that nobody would, like, check in a thousand beers in, like, a second and crash our infrastructure. Right. Um, but, you know, we've, felt, we've obviously done a much better job with that going forward. But, um, you know, we were, we were a little uh, scared if this ever came back at us. From a legal a legal perspective, but we obviously took care of that uh, early on, and, and and now we don't we don't have that limitation. What if you're tasting, right? You go to a a, a pub that exactly. serves hundred beers on tap, right? And you say, I want to. That was the biggest problem is that people would go to breweries and they'd yeah. go and get a flight of beer, and right. they want to check in all six in the span of a minute. Well, yeah, obviously sure. that's possible to do, and uh, you know they were obviously uh, you know pretty upset that they had to wait. You know, I think our timer was like. 60 seconds or two minutes or something like that. They'd literally be sitting on their phone. I had a friend who early on tap user that used to use the iPhone timer and he used to set the timer when he checked into a beer so he could check into another one. So obviously nice. we had a big problem there. We had to change that to make it more functional. I also see you use the badging process too. Yes. And that's, of course, I've seen those tweets many times. <laughs> yeah, the, 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 the badge or the gamification elements of Untap were literally just uh, taken from inspiration from Foursquare. We really had no idea um, how this would be perceived by users. I mean, if you think about it, these are like, you know, beer achievements, uh, which... You know, actually, not thinking about that's pretty cool. Uh, you know, but at the time, at the time, I didn't think that people would actually really be interested in, in the badge system. 
and it's completely, you know, changed my mind. I mean, they've been really into it. Um, a lot of our, our breweries are sponsoring some badges now. So it allows the users to kind of go out there and get selected beers to get that badge. Um, you know, we do badges for, for organizations for beer weeks and that's helping them kind of market their beer week out there and get the word out about, uh, different venues and events. So it's really kind of changed from this perception of just a simple kind of, uh, you know, achievement for doing certain activities. Some of the early badges we had were like drinking, you know, five beers in a calendar month before noon and we called it the top of the morning badge. Or <laughs> so, you know, some of those really kind of fun and, 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 and engaging. To more harder ones like, uh, you know, drinking beers that have a certain IBU greater than 65. So those to challenge you to kind of go outside your, your taste profile. Can you define that acronym for those who aren't uh, aware? Yes. Uh, IBU is International Bitter Unit. So it's actually a term used to kind of describe some of the level of hops that go into a beer. Um, so you'll typically see a lot of IPAs or India Pale Ales have a high um, uh, IBU character, uh, usually around 65 to 70. Uh, if you go to a double IPA, which is traditionally around a 9% alcohol by volume, you'll see that IBU increase. So as the higher alcohol goes, the IBU typically goes as high as well. So, you know, all these badges kind of describe a way of users to kind of go outside their comfort zone and try things that they don't like to, uh, normally like. And, you know, you never know. Sometimes it, it surprises you. I've seen so many people that drink the same thing over and over and on tap and will introduce a badge that they want to try and they go out there and they try it. And all of a sudden, you see checking into all these different types of things all over the world. So it's great to see that kind of uh, excitement around these badge systems. It's an interesting force on the badging to get people to try new things just to get the badge. Yeah, you know, I, I have a hard time explaining this, to, you know, to anyone. You know, it's typically, you know, I talk to my, my parents about Untap, which is hard enough as it is. But then <laughs> I, I, you know, I have to explain to them what these badges are because, you know, I'll come home for the holidays and I'll be like, here, um, you know, I, I got this beer for this badge. And they say, why do you go out there and buy the beer for the badge? And I said, I don't know. I just want the badge. <laughs> you put the badge in. It's a very high, high idea to explain. And the best way I, I have it's like when you go into a carnival and you see the guy or the girl with that big giant panda on their back walking out of the carnival. You just want that panda. You don't know how he got it or how she got it. You just want to have that panda. You can take it home. You don't do yeah. anything with the panda later on. You don't put it up on a shelf <laughs> yeah. or put it in the basement. You just want to have it so you can show everyone at the carnival that you just won this really big prize. That's <laughs> right, the same sure. thing I think with the badges is is that people want to share it and brag to their friends about it on social media. And honestly, probably a little, you know a month later, they have they forgot even they earned it. But it's just for that moment right then and there, they get to, you know, really be excited about it and get energetic about it. It is interesting what motivates people to uh, use an app like that. But, hey, i got to wonder, have the beer companies been after you for advertising? Do you sell ads? And I can imagine, you know, the breweries are the ones that want uh, your customers, huh? Yeah, we, we do. Uh, we don't do traditional advertising. I'm actually really, uh, I, I don't like it. Uh, the way that the ads don't really integrate well with some products. So what yeah. we've tried to do with Untapped is that we have our badge system is traditionally our advertising system as well. So brewers can come on there and say, Hey, uh, we have a new beer that's launching and we like to do a badge to celebrate that beer. So people will check into that beer and they'll get the badge. That'll be kind of, um, the artwork will be around their brand and, and, and their product. And the best part about this is that this advertisement is not seen as an ad to the users. Right. They want to get it. I don't, how many times have you seen someone take a screenshot of a Facebook ad on the side right column and share it on Facebook and say, look at this ad. It's great. Nobody does that. So we wanted to create a product that was so integrated with the advertising system that users would actually go in and share this outside of our system and be excited to earn it. And Neat. that's what we've done with the badge in our promotion system. So that's what the breweries are interested in doing now. And we, again, we have other ways that breweries interact with users. We have, uh, obviously, the claiming system I talked about, where breweries can claim their brand on Untapped. And then what they can do is they can comment directly with the users about feedback about their about their product or why they didn't like it. This is very important stuff. Right now, the breweries have no contact, at least in the United States, with the traditional you know three-tiered system of the bar distributor and the brewery all the brewery knows that the bar has sold all of their beer they don't know anything about the users they know nothing about what they thought about it whether they liked it or not and our product is hopefully going to help them uh connect better with the users and get better feedback on what they're serving and where they should be serving wow i was going to start off with the idea of hey you know i see the app is free how do you and you have a real job quote unquote <laughs> <laughs> 
how do you sustain this thing? And, and it, clearly you're not tying it up. I've looked at the API, like you, you could make your own untapped app from this API anytime you want. Yeah, I, I think, you know, obviously we'd like you to build on top of the API as opposed to building, you know, a competitor product or anything like that. But I think what it comes down to it is that we have a couple ways where we keep the app running. And one of that ways is our untapped supporter accounts. They're kind of like pro, pro accounts for untapped, but not really, where they kind of geared um, for users to gain, gain access to uh, interesting statistics and stats around their check-ins. We provide like, you know, uh, Google Maps to show you where you've been and what you had there. We also provide you information to export your check-ins to a JSON file or an XML or, or uh, Excel so you can do your own analytics if you want to. We also give you a special badge for being a supporter, which people like to have. So we have some benefits that people can do to, to kind of support Untapped Grow. And a lot of people do this to help us grow as well. So we do that provides some of the, the revenue and the and the, the ability to keep the service running. But, you know, a lot of people don't understand that Untapped is actually run by two people part-time right. in, you know, in their own free time. And, you know, I tell them that they're like, "Whoa, uh, that's insane." Do you sleep? And I don't. And so that's usually <laughs> the answer I give them. Well, I, mean, I guess that's the question: Why aren't you doing Untapped full time? Well, I think when we first started with Untapped, um, you know, uh, we we weren't sure uh, if anyone really wanted to use it. To be honest with you, I remember telling my co-founder, "I don't think anyone's going to use this, man. Maybe our, our our close friends and and our relatives, but that's about it." And I was obviously dead wrong with that. Yeah. And uh, you know, I think I think. You know, a lot of startups come out where the, you know, the founders are, um, you know, 21, 22, right out of college. They, you know, they don't really have a family or anything like that to, to support. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm married. I'm almost 30 years old. So, it, you know, it, it wasn't really a decision I, I could do to quit my job and just keep going and try this thing for, uh, you know, untapped going full time. Sure. Obviously, obviously now with, with the, with the stuff that we're doing and, and the users that we have, you know, we could definitely try to raise some money to, to, to do that. But I think, you know, we, we've hit this niche perfect and we've yeah, been you've able already to- done all the hard work. What do you need more money for? It, 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 that's kind of my point is that we've done all the hard work. We really have this system in place. I mean, we, we've built some custom tooling because, you know, again, we don't have, you know, operation staff. We don't have, um, you know, uh, real time, you know, server monitoring. So we built our own instrumentation to do all these things hmm. and with the goal to make our life easier. Right. Uh, I actually built uh, an application and I can control the servers from my phone. So in case that there's a problem when I'm out, I don't have to go scurry home and, and, and fix it. So and th- there are there are things that we have built to help us with this type of situation. I think we've been so ingrained in it now that I think we've, we've got this down to a science and how we're going to do it. But, you know, that could change any day. We could go full time on this in the future if we wanted to. But I think right now we're happy with what we have and what we're able to do. And hopefully maybe in the future that will change. Is it costing you money to run the app and the servers and stuff? Right now, I mean, we're, we're doing pretty well with our supporter accounts and the supporter accounts are helping us continue the, the, the cost of the server and the environments and, and everything else. And we're doing, uh, pretty good in that aspect. Obviously, we'd love to see more. We'd love to have, uh, more, more of this stuff to do cooler things. Uh, you know, we, we started out, I remember when we first built out the servers, they were, they were on, regular shared hosting that didn't last very long and then it moved quickly to you know virtual hosting and then it moved to dedicated hosting then it moved to cloud hosting and and, we've been moving up the realm you know as we grow and with that obviously the cost of growth but we've been really good and really fortunate to work for the right people to get our costs down and and help us uh help us keep growing uh, as a whole so that's that's what we do for that hey richard yeah buddy guess what time it is uh it must be that happy time again yep Time to make like a necrophiliac mortician and pop a cold one. Ah, oh, that's awful. Thank you. Beer puns and necrophilia. (laughs) Actually, that is the name of a novel by uh, Rick Coster, who is a writer at The Day. And uh, he wrote a novel about a necrophiliac mortician, and the novel is called Poppin' a Cold One. Oh, that's that's (laughs) horrible. Horrible. So that, that one goes out to Rick. (laughs) <laughs> it's actually time to give away a Telerik DevCraft collection to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. But first, let me tell you about Telerik Next. Telerik Next is the first annual global developer and customer conference from Telerik. Held at the prestigious Hyatt Boston Harbor Conference Center in Boston, Massachusetts, on May 4th and 5th, Telerik invites you to come and join with developers from around the world to learn about modern application development and Telerik tools and best practices. 
From web to mobile to desktop, no platform will be left behind. Check it out at TellericNext.com. All right, buddy. Who's our winner? Today's winner, Richard, is Buddy Murphy. Oh, congratulations, buddy. Golf yeah. clap for you, sir. Buddy just won the Telerik DevCraft collection. That's a big pile of awesome from Telerik just for being a member of the fan club. And if you don't know what we're talking about here, go to .NET Rocks.com, click on the big Get Free Stuff button, answer a few questions, and join the .NET Rocks fan club. We have thousands of members all over the world. Every show, we give away stuff from our sponsors. And every December, we give away $5,000 worth of technology to one lucky member of the fan club. But you got to join to win. We'd like to ask our guests, Greg, if you had $5,000 to spend on technology right now, what would you buy? You know, one of the biggest problems that we have, at least with Untapped, is mobile testing. Oh, so yeah. if I had $5,000, I would probably buy a suite of phones that I could set up in some sort of a way that I could test it. To be honest, most of the stuff that we've done, because we don't have a lot of resources and funding, is that we would actually buy a lot of these used devices on eBay. Uh, and you never know what you're going to get when you buy something like that on eBay. So I, if I had $5,000, I would definitely set up some sort of mobile testing, um, you know, unit or package or something with a lot of different phones, easily chargeable, something that I could, you know, easily bring around. And uh, that's kind of what I would do for sure. Well, what about one of these uh, test suites? You know, the, they have these uh, cloud-based test platforms that you can uh upload your app to and they test it on a bunch of phones like Xamarin has a test cloud and I think even yeah. Telerik has something as well. Yeah, those are great for kind of visually seeing things and making sure that they work. But for me, honestly, a lot of the stuff that we do with Untapped is I need to be able to hold the device in my hand and see how it interacts with the user. And I think it's, it may be unique to our situation, but because mm. we're an alcohol app, you know, people are going to be using it and a little buzz at the same time. So we want to <laughs> yeah. make sure that they, the buttons are bigger, they're clear. That's why you see a lot of yellow on the app. Um, so that's kind of how we do it. But those products are definitely good. I've used a lot of them before. Uh, but I prefer the uh, kind of, if you, if you can, swing it, um, the more native uh, kind of in-your-hand testing. It really is an interesting constraint. You have to make a UI that's drunk proof. <laughs> it's absolutely true. I've, I've, I've talked to a lot of developers and they always say, you know, we need to focus on our UX, UI, make it really easy to use. And I say, well, I do that too, but I also have to add in the fact that these guys are probably a little under the table when they're using the application to begin with. So you have to really be... Uh, uh, clear and concise and big buttons and you know, handling, you know, fast fingering, a lot of things, because that's really what it's all about. Yeah. And, you know, if you were willing to buy nothing but used phones with five grand, you'd probably get it down, you know, 100, 200 a piece. Like you're going to get 50, 70 phones out of it. That is one heck of a drawer of broken dreams. Actually, <laughs> what you could do is just go around and ask for people's old phones. Because it's the old yes. ones that are hardest to get. And, you know, typically people don't want them after they're done with them. Exactly, exactly. And that, and that you know, I, I've been doing that for a long time for Untapped. That's how I get most of my test phones is that I'll wait for like something like the Samsung Galaxy uh, S5 or S4. I'll wait for the new one to get out. And then I'll see if my friends that had one are going to give up their old one. Right. So I'll buy it from them. That's how I've done most of the testing right now but i think you know having a more integrated solution with that 5000 uh i've seen some of the boards at, at google and some of the things that some of the um uh, adobe with their testing areas and, and telework as well are they able to have this kind of the system where it lays on the wall they're all charged if you want to pull one off just plug it in it's very easy to do i'd love to get something like that that's um, cool you know working with us but how many phones are you testing on now we, you know, we actually moved off of the Android 2.3 platform about a year ago, which has, has obviously saved a lot of devices. Oh, uh, no more Froyo. No more Froyo for us. But I think, uh, we test mainly on the, on the Samsung. We, we basically go on the manufacturer build. So we have one for uh, LG, we have one for Samsung, and then we have one for Motorola. Right. And we'll basically test on those three, uh, uh, manufacturers because all of those have different flavors of Android, even though they're all the same. The UI is different. The, the bills are different. And then we'll, we'll finally test one on pure Google. That's usually the one we do for just basic testing because, honestly, everything works on it. There's right. not, I've never, ever broken anything on a regular Android phone. Yeah, no, I like the bare metal Android version of it. I really enjoy it. So do you test on Android first and then do iOS and so on? Yes, iOS is a little bit easier to do from a testing perspective because we have 
Um, you know, obviously there's more screen sizes that there have been in the past. Yeah. Um, but most of the, of the emulators or the simulators are very good and you can kind of catch, uh, UI issues pretty easily. When you get to the devices, you know, at that point, um, you know, most of the testing we do is, uh, you know, I'm an iPhone user, so I can test most of the time. Uh, my co-founder is also an iPhone user. So, you know, we, we test this product in, in, in the live a lot. And with the Android, there's so many different variants of it. We need to test it on multiple phones uh, throughout the build process. For the iPhone, it's, it's, it's a little bit easier from a development perspective to, to handle uh, less crashes and less issues there. So we don't spend a lot of time with the testing on iOS more on Android. So I have a lot more Android phones than I do iOS. Yeah, for sure. Because of the, the way that the, the fragmentation works. Plus, uh, Apple always drives you to the latest OS and so forth. I mean, it makes your life as a dev much simpler. Oh, exactly. Most of the, the, the phones are going to update anyways. I mean, right now, if you're running an iPhone 4S, I believe you can still get at least iOS 7, yeah. maybe even 8. I'm not really sure. I have to look at the, the chart there. But uh, that's amazing for us because iPhone 4S is literally almost a four-year-old phone. Yeah. So, you know, that's that's a hmm. great lifespan for for new, um, new OSs. The problem on Android side is that we have these in manufacturers like Samsung and, and LG and Motorola, I take their own flavors of, 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 uh, Android and they make their own builds from it. So when, when I get my Android 5.0 on my Nexus 5, uh, the people who have the S5 device that can definitely handle it don't get it for a very long time. Huh. So that makes it very hard to kind of, you know, keep with the design, obviously with material design being so important. Five, you know, they don't get that really on the, on the, uh, the Samsung devices until they get upgraded. So you know, it's, it's kind of a little bit of a hassle, but yeah, it's just the way that it works. So are you building natively? We're using a product called PhoneGap, um, which used to be part of a, uh, a product, a company called Natobi, which was bought out by Adobe. Yes. No, no pun intended there again. Well, we've talked about PhoneGap on the show before. Yeah, we're a big we're a big believer in PhoneGap, but we've used them. I've been using them since version zero point seven. I think they're on four point two now. So I've been losing for a very long time. And you know, we are a very unique situation where our app is 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 mainly used as a social feed app. There mm. is some you know more enhancements with the photos and uh, things of that nature, but you know, mainly it's a social discovery app with lists and a lot of things of that nature. They're not too complex. We don't we're not doing anything crazy in terms of memory usage. Um, so we wanted to find out. You know, when we first built our application, we built it as a mobile web application. So we were only on the on the web at um, m.untap.com, which doesn't really exist anymore, but it's a long story. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's what we were. And the reason why we decided that is that we weren't sure who would use the application. So we said, let's make it web-based. Let's get some feedback. Let's get some improvements on there, and let's see if people use the application. And it turned out that was a very successful move for us because on day one, we were able to support up to four platforms. We were on Palm. OS back then. Wow. That was around. And, and it, yeah, it just indeed. worked. And you see other, other developers, they, they, they struggle. They, they get out their iOS release. And the very first question that somebody asks is, where's the Android one? Where's the Windows phone one? And you're like, Oh, I just finished this one. I got to go to another one. And, and, you know, for us, we wanted to see people actually use this. So we went the mobile web route and we kind of milked that as long as we could. And then eventually, uh, we decided that we wanted to go to native. And we wanted to be able to take what we've already using for our experiences and build that into a very highly functional app. Right. So we thought, hey, we'll use just a web view. And we actually just put our code in a web view and we, we submitted it and we got rejected. And <laughs> we're like, okay, well, this isn't obviously the way that we should be doing this. Let's try to find another solution. Uh, back then, there wasn't any jQuery mobile. Uh, there wasn't, uh, I- iconic, which I absolutely love. Um, and there wasn't anything of, of uh, of that nature out there. So we said, let's look at PhoneGap and PhoneGap was our saving grace. We were able to write really code in one area. We have our, our structure set up that are templates. The area inside of the application is all the same across all of our apps, but the navigational elements change based on what platform you're using. And we're able to reuse code across platforms. We can build, we can test, we can deploy. And it just made our life a lot easier uh, to work with. And that's kind of the way we use PhoneGap right now. That's nice, but I, I appreciate you're still discreetly testing everything. Oh yeah, I mean you know anyone that could you know I, I overheard earlier you know th- th- there's there's no going to be one platform that's going to be able to completely work on every every single phone device. There, right. It could be iconic, it could be PhoneGap. I mean PhoneGap's not a platform. I, I shouldn't say that, but I mean the the code that you write on one platform is not going to work 
all the way. You have to make some tweaks. Sure. So we've built our own system to kind of be able to use the um, the device ID to determine or the device platform to know what it is and then determine the, the next steps for it. But we have to test on multiple platforms and we have to do an Android specifically because of the fragmentation. Um, that's why I'm so happy that the Android 4 4.4 and higher now uses something called the Chrome view, which is replacing the old Android web view that you'd normally see when you get uh, an older phone that had the, 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 the good old globe on your home screen called Internet. That was my favorite name for any type of browser. I mean, I, I couldn't believe that they called it Internet. Uh, but, you know, I, I think, uh, you know, that, that view right there was so far behind in terms of the t- technology and the functionality of Chrome. And now that 4.4 going forward has the ability to use this Chrome view, which is basically using Chrome as your web view, makes it a lot better. Because we would see issues like I'd be testing some on my computer, I'm testing it on iPhone and Android, and then, you know, a 2.3 device or a 3, you know, 4.0 device loaded up and it'd be like the buttons are all out of, out of, out of whack. And you don't understand why it's like because it's a different web web component. They, they have a different browser engine. Android WebView is not as powerful as Chrome. So I'm really excited to see that, that Android is moving a lot forward with these type of applications and supporting this type of uh, WebView interface. Greg, what does your server-side stack look like? We're a traditional Lampa stack. I mean, we started out because, uh, you know, that was my forte. Um, that didn't really last very long. We're still running PHP as our primary backend scripting language. We've also, um, we've, we've, uh, basically scaled out our database layer to be, uh, multi-tenant and also on, um, different types of database structures. So we use MySQL, Procona f- uh, flavor, uh, primarily as our data store. But we also use MongoDB for all, a lot of our location-based lookup searches because of the, the fast geospatial um, uh, indexing it has on some of the documents in there. Mm. We also use Redis heavily because you may have noticed in the application we have a lot of counts. We have a, how many how many unique beers have you had? How many total beers have you had? And you know when we first started that was a very easy easy count to calculate in the database. But now you know we have users with five thousand unique beers they've had, and and that's a very intense process that has to run. So. We use uh, our Redis counter to basically increase those as they check in, so we can keep a really good cache rate of these uh, these values. Um, so now we're kind of using a lot of different flavors. We use Elasticsearch for our searching mechanism before we use traditional, you know, like queries, which was not very good. Uh, but you know, we've obviously enhanced that process too. So you know, obviously that's that's our kind of our our backend stack. These all sound like scaling moves. They just, yes, you yes. got bigger and you're bigger. And it's like, how do we do this faster? Well, look over here. Exactly. And, and you know, one thing I, I always say, people ask, how, how did you know how to do this? And the answer is, I, I really didn't. I mean, when you're in school and I went to school for computer science, they don't teach you really, at least when I was in school, they don't teach you how to build a website for 2 million users no. uh, in right. your part time. They never do that. I I don't know how to run a run a query for five people to make it run fast. That was the project. I mean, that's <laughs> not really what what it's like at this point. And again, I understand that most apps maybe don't get to this point, but I had to learn a lot on on the fire. Uh, you know, we were crashing specifically a lot and having a lot of downtime on Friday and Saturday nights. I mean, most of the time, most applications that you work on. Their, their busiest days are Monday through Friday from, you know, morning to evening. Right. We run an app that's the complete opposite of that. We yeah, go no. on really yeah. hot at 5, 6 p.m. And we have to be, be able to manage that throughout the weekend and also on the big heavy nights like Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. And so we've had to, we, we, we crashed a lot. Um, and I'm going to knock on wood. We've been very good, um, in terms of, uh, keeping a good uptime ratio and, and kind of scaling out using new technologies to help solve some of the needs that we have. And, uh, obviously our hosting provider, Rackspace, um, has helped us significantly with that as well. So, you know, it's just been a very good learning process for me. And, uh, uh, yeah, I, I think, you know, it, it's hard to kind of figure out how to scale. You know, I think people go into applications thinking, hey, I need to have, you know, like 500 million gigs right off the bat. Well, you really don't. But if you do, you're going to be paying a lot for that right off the bat and you're not going to know what to do with it. So we've had to do the opposite effect where we had really no resources. We were starting out with nothing. We had to scale up gradually with our price range and be able to have the servers in, in place to prevent, you know, catastrophic issues there. So we've been scaling up and learning more about technologies and, and, and figuring out what works best for us. I think we found a good, good spot right now. And I got nothing bad to say about Rackspace. I've used them before, but I'm curious <laughs> why they're and not AWS. 
It's a very good question. People ask me that question a, a lot. And I'll give it to you straight. I have no allegiance to any one of these services. Uh, you know, Rackspace has been great to us. They've been providing a lot of great services. And so is AWS. We use CloudFront, which is the CDN for um, uh, AWS. We yep. use uh, S3 for all of our imagery, all of the photos uploaded. Um, the, the plain and simple truth is that we're moving off of um, shared hosting. Uh, I do nothing about Linux servers or anything else. And we had a friend set up our infrastructure for us the very first time about four years ago. And he picked Rackspace because he said it was a good company and a good cloud environment and we should work with them. And I said, okay. And that's kind of the way it works. I mean, <laughs> and and it's absolutely true. I, mean, I, I consider them, you know, not one of the big cl- public cloud providers, but they use cloud infrastructure and you can buy what you need. Exactly. Yep. And I think one of the things that we really needed when we were coming up is support. And, you know, with AWS, it do have a support structure, but it's not as, at least in my experience, it's not as intuitive and, and easy to use as Rackspace's support is. I can call up anytime I want and I can talk to someone and I get some help and I can get some support. Obviously, they're not going to code it for me, but they can help me with the infrastructure and tell me what's going on at that level. With AWS, when we've had problems with CDN or, or S3, I have to shoot a message in a box and hopefully that it will come back and help me. So I'm really, I think that's one of the reasons why we like Rackspace so much is the, is the support. I think that's where they stand out in terms of uh, their offerings uh, from, from that perspective. Are you starting to use geolocation? Yes. Geolocation has been a heavy feature of the app since day one. Uh, it's, you know, our goal is to help people connect them with, with beer. And like I mentioned earlier, <laughs> uh, we basically don't have the ability to, uh, there's no way to say this beer is only served in this location. Right. We're talking about, you know, places versus their lat long coordinates. So we're using location to be able to basically create this huge tag system of saying this beer is 90% chance in this area. It's 10% in this area. So that's how we're using geolocation to better serve the users to give them an idea of, Hey, where is this beer around me? Where is it being served? And can I get it? Because nobody wants to get a recommendation from a beer that they can't get. Yeah. Um, and that would right. be like a really bad experience. Well, and, and there's importation, right? Like you never, yes, it's a Belgian beer, but exactly. it's in New York because somebody imported it. Yeah. And that's the other thing too, is that these beers, not only they come in from, from people, but you know, there are a lot of beer traders out there and that they'll send beer across the country, whether right. it's legal or not. I'm not going to get into that, that space. That's but, an interesting you know, problem. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I think, you know, those also allow beers to be, you know, uh, you know, populated across the U.S. I mean, uh, living in New York here, we have access to a great number of breweries. But if you go to California, if you go to Texas, you're going to get a whole different set. That's, yes. that's the really cool thing about, about this, this beer, this beer market is that. You know, while we have this problem of distribution and people can't get beers that they really want, you could travel and you could see a whole different selection of beers you've never even heard of before. And that's cool. It happens over and over again. Um, I mean, my only real problem with this whole thing, Carl, is it needs to be whiskey. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> Let's make a new well, one. Yeah. <laughs> since since, uh, we'll since call we, it we started getting a little popular, a lot of people have asked us, what is the... When are you going to make the X of Untap? We've gotten any types of, you know, uh, request. Wine has been the most popular one out there. Uh, whiskey, obviously. Bourbon is another one. We've seen weird ones like cigars. I don't, you know, weird, all these weird stuff. And, 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 and the crazy thing is that we love to do it. The problem is that we only are two people. And, yes. you know, Untapped has become this, uh, ecosystem that we've developed and we're, we're obviously, you know, uh, really passionate about making this work and making it good. We definitely would love to move on to some of the other aspects as well, but we always feel like every one of those aspects it really needs its own application. Yeah. I don't really want to mix uh, bourbon or whiskey with Untap. It just wouldn't make any sense. Um, you know, you want to make it a separate experience or different characteristics and metadata about whiskey or wine or, or, or bourbon that's more relevant than it is for beer. Number one, the vintage is very important in wine and also how old the bourbon or whiskey is. Yep. But if you have a 25 year old IPA, God help you. I mean, I don't know. I don't know what's wrong. Maybe you need some help. Yeah. Uh, I don't think that's beer anymore at that point. Yeah. It's probably just <laughs> uncarbonated water. I don't, I'm not really sure. <laughs> yeah. But I think, you know, that's the point that, you know, we'd like to get to in the future. Maybe making, you know, branching off, making other versions of untapped. Obviously, we've got the infrastructure pretty set up well. We know the data model very well. It's just a matter of um, creating that experience maybe in the future. Yeah. Really, really interesting stuff and interesting to see where you take with it. Obviously, you know, once upon a time, you were just trying to keep a record of what beers you drank. Exactly. I mean, the whole point is, you know, you think about it. How many times have you gone to a bar, you've ordered a beer, 
and you drink it and you're like, I hate this beer. Why did I order this beer? I had this beer like two months ago. I just totally forgot and I blanked. And, you know, the yeah. app obviously is something that will help you remember what you like and what you didn't like. So you're not, you know, having that beer that you, that you hated. Yeah. Um, the, the word, it's going into a bar. It's like, I had a great beer here. What beer was that? <laughs> exactly. It happens all the time. If I remember a little bit of the name or what date it was, well, I can search on tap for that, find out what it was and then have it again. And that's kind of the, it all started. You know, and the problem is by the time you think enough to take a picture of the bottle, it's too late. <laughs> <laughs> there you go, right? You got to do that before you drink the beer. <laughs> I've taken a lot of pictures of bottles, but I can never find them the next time I come in. Yeah, yes, they're funny that way. That's the bottles. Yeah, that's that is absolutely the challenge. Well, what you're winding up with here, Greg, is a huge database of beer and what people like and dislike about it, which I think is your cash cow later on down the road. Yeah, that, that's what we're kind of thinking of is that, you know, if you think about it logically, these beer companies, they pay millions and millions of dollars for focus groups. And that's people, these are big breweries that come in, drink their beer and give opinions about that. And right now we're doing that option on tap. People can see it in real time. But behind the scenes, we have a lot of metadata on how these beers are being perceived. I mean, you know, there are a lot of things you can do with the data that makes it uh, more interesting potentially to new breweries and even bigger or smaller to figure out what works in what areas of the country, what the demographics are. I mean, that's what we think will provide help breweries uh, make a better product for the consumer. At the same time, the consumer can learn from this data and get better beers. So I think it's a win-win for everybody. Yeah, it is. And especially, you know, if somebody wants to do some market research, that's obviously something you can charge for. And I'm not saying that to be uh, greedy or anything, but that's people <laughs> will pay for that. I'm I'm serious. That's a right. valuable insight into. Uh, so there you go, man. This sounds really great, and congratulations on your success. And may you have a lot more. And maybe we'll get to have a beer with you someday. Absolutely. You know, I I, I always love to do that. I I, I tend to. To, to see a, uh, when I go into a bar sometimes and my wife's with me and she'll look over and she'll see, oh, that guy's using Untapped. You go talk to him. I, I'm, I'm not the kind of the guy who wants to be up to go over to someone and be like, hey, I'm the co-founder of that app that you're using. Yeah. Please bow down to me. You know, I, I, I've always loved to drink with people. I'm a user like everybody else. So I, I love to enjoy the experience. I think that's what, what Untapped's all about is having that community and experience together. So if you guys are ever in town, I don't, I don't know where you guys are located out of, but uh, I love to have beer with you guys. Greg, thank you very much, and we'll see you, dear listener, next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Pwop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got a transmitter band.